Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shift podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, we have a very special guest who is on here to share her story. And as you all know, I really love when people are willing to come on here and be vulnerable and open up and share their story, their journey with their eating disorder. And today we have a topic um, that this person is going to come on and talk about that we actually haven't uh, approached on the podcast yet. And so um, this is actually something um, we've kind of touched on, but but not to this degree. I've talked about diabetes. I've talked about eating disorders. Um, but some of you may not have heard of the word diabulimia. Um, it's actually not a diagnosis in our diagnostic manual. Um, so I'm glad that our guest is here today to uh, discuss more about what that is. And hopefully you'll have more of an understanding about what um, what that means. I've added some information in the show notes about that. Um, I know that's in the title, so um, some of you are kind of maybe shaking your heads or some of you may know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but basically, um, in a nutshell, um, diabulimia is it's a media coin term, really, that refers to an eating disorder in a person who has diabetes, typically type 1 diabetes, wherein the person purposely restricts insulin in order to lose weight. Um, and, um, you know, our guest is going to discuss more about um, her dual diagnosis of uh, diabetes and having an eating disorder and more about obviously her journey. Um, and so I just think it's really important um, for any of you out there who have both diagnoses um, to hopefully listen, relate. Um, and of course, if you ever have questions or comments, please feel free to um, DM me on any of my um, platforms, whether it's the website or Instagram or Facebook. Um, look forward to hearing from you. Um, but I do want to introduce our guest and get right into it. She has a lot to say and a lot of great information. And again, I'm really appreciative that she's here. Um, so with that being said, um, Meg Hinkenhoff is, um, I guess that she started right where a lot of you are. She was stuck in an endless cycle of dieting and binging and feeling so out of control around food. And after many attempts at treatment and therapy, her own journey to recovery looked a little different than many other approaches. Um, and now after many years of a fuller, freer, healthier relationship with food in her body, she has taken those same techniques and tools to help other women become success stories when it comes to rebuilding their relationships with food and their bodies effortlessly. So with that being said, I'm excited to bring her on. Meg, welcome to the show. Excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So, um, you know, a lot of the audience uh, listening, you know, they're struggling with uh, disordered eating or eating disorders, body image. And, um, you know, for any of you who 
have listened to the show before, maybe you don't know anything about it. Um, I always love when people are willing to come on and share their stories. Um, so I really appreciate you being on here. Um, but that being said, people, you know, probably want to know a little bit, I, you know, introduced you a little bit, but probably want to know more about you and um, curious, like, what, what would you like us to know just to get started? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Meg. Um, I struggled with both eating disorders and disordered eating all over the spectrum since I was 11 years old. Um, and I struggled for about 17, 18 years, so more than half my life. Um, and I eventually did find recovery in my late 20s um, through intuitive eating. I was very lucky to actually have someone approach me and say, hey, I think this can help you. Um, and it did. And it inspired me to study intuitive eating further and um, build a program to help other people uh, overcome their insecurities with food and their poor relationship with food through intuitive eating. Because I just felt like, damn, everyone needs to know about this. Okay. So, um, and I have lots of questions for you about that because I, I always, in my practice, do get questions about, um, you know, how do you get into recovery and like, what is intuitive eating? I think there's a, you know, I've had Evelyn Tridley on uh, here to discuss that, but I think there are a lot of questions um, coming from the author would be one thing, but actually having gone through recovery using intuitive eating um, is a whole different experience. Um, so I'm really grateful you're here. The, you know, you said about 11, it started. So is that something that you were aware of at the age of 11 or is that something that over time you realized okay something's off with my food like maybe this is disordered eating or is that something you realized in hindsight that it started around 11 um I remember I I don't actually really remember it starting um I guess it kind of happened over time and I feel like when you're 11 years old you really don't understand what you're doing to yourself when you're doing that it's kind of interesting because I remember I, I was a dancer at the time and sadly a young student at my dance studio passed away from complications from anorexia. And I remember asking my parents, what's anorexia? I don't, I don't get it. What is that? And they were like, oh, it's when you kind of think you're fat. So you don't eat. They had no education. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody not eat? I don't get that. I love eating. And six months later, I was diagnosed. So, and I didn't even realize that it was happening. And it was something that my parents noticed. So they took me to the children's hospital um, where I'm from. And they diagnosed me with, with anorexia. Um, at that time, they just suggested that my GP watch me and I seek therapy. Um, but when I was 13, they actually admitted me to the hospital for eating disorder treatment. That is so interesting. You had this mentality of like, why would nobody, uh, why would somebody not eat? And you know, you said, I love food. And then it was such a short time later that you were diagnosed. And so curious, like, did you actually, at the time that you heard that, were you actually eating differently than you were six months later? Yeah, insanely differently. I was, I was a really tall kid. I had a fast metabolism. I was dancing. I was always a pretty skinny kid, like objectively. Um, I never had any uh, self-consciousness around my weight or my food. Um, and I do remember things kind of changing. Um, I would eat, I would eat literally whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. I was a kid. Um, and I remember 
I just started to eat less. I didn't count calories. I didn't know what a calorie was at 11 years old, but I just started to eat less and less and less. Um, and I just, I, I grew afraid of, of eating. And like I said, I didn't know what, I didn't know what it was. I wasn't actively thinking like I need to be on a diet or, um, you know, that like, this is what I had heard of. This is what anorexia is. I didn't make those connections. I just really grew afraid of, of food. And was it actually the fear of food itself or because, you know, a lot of times people will say there was like a comment made or maybe being in a dance world, there was this pressure on dancers to like eat less or look a certain way. Like mm -hmm. looking back, do you have any idea like what was going on? Yeah. And it took me a long time to realize it. Um, I, my, my dance teachers made comments for sure. And I was one of those kids where I was like, that's ridiculous. And like it rolled off my back. And in hindsight, I'm not sure if any of it kind of like rooted and I just, I wasn't realizing it. But in my recovery journey, I realized that um, I have a, a very much a type perfectionistic sort of personality as many people with anorexia have. And I had a very poor relationship with my father. He very, very much vocalized that my sister was his favorite and that he didn't really like me because I reminded him of my mom. And I remember really thinking like, what can I do to impress him? What can I do to get his attention? What can I get? What can I do to make him see me? And I think that my coping mechanism was to be as perfect as possible. And that meant perfect with my food, perfect with my eating, perfect with my body type. And I, I really think it was a coping mechanism that manifested in trying to be the, the all-star kid for my dad that really just spiraled into a massive eating disorder. That sounds so awfully painful to know, to have that knowledge that, I mean, blatantly said to you that you were not the favorite. Um, now, were your parents together at this time? No, my parents separated um, really around that time. I was about 10 or 11 years old when they separated. Okay. Now, were you going back and forth with your parents or were you primarily with one or the other? I was primarily with my mom. My dad had like every other weekend kind of visitation. Um, but I, I pretty much lived with my mom most of the time. Um, eventually, actually, at about... At about 13 years old, just before I was admitted to the hospital, I actually made the choice to say, like, this is not the right environment for me. I don't want to be here anymore. And I ended up living with my mom full time. Now, you know, a lot of people have uh, family dynamics that are a part of things or can be contributing factors. There's obviously lots of factors that play into having an eating disorder. Um, just curious, is your sister older or younger? My sister's younger. My sister's three years younger. Um, I'm not sure if this is where your question is leading, but she's never struggled mm. with an eating disorder or eating issues. I also have a younger brother who has no eating issues. He does have anxiety disorder, but it never manifested in eating issues. Um, and did mom or anybody else in the family ever talk about like food, dieting, body image, anything else like that? I'd say I had an almond mom growing up. I remember Weight Watchers. I remember 
Herbalife. I remember Beachbody. I remember all of those things when I was younger, the cookbooks and the programs and talking about, I, I'm going to make my dinner and it's going to look different than your dinner and those kinds of things. She never really spoke about her body, um, but I noticed that she felt she needed to eat differently than us. So through your recovery, did all of those kinds of things get talked about and discussed? Or did you realize that those weren't really, were or weren't influences on you? I think it's hard to say. Um, Having been so young, it's hard to remember what I thought or how I felt when those things were said. I can't imagine any of it had a positive influence on me or how I felt about myself. Um, Honestly, it wasn't brought up too often. Um, I remember a few times feeling frustrated with my mother while I was in recovery. So in my teen years and and early 20s, when I was more, I think I was able to be more aware of her comments and their effects on me and how I thought about food. Um, And she was very honest saying, you know, I am trying to lose weight, um, you know, for my health, etc. But I, I felt like, there was still a level of uh, insensitivity where she would talk about the types of foods she would eat and buy and keep in the house, but keep reiterating, it's because I need them. I need these foods. Um, And I think that was really hard for me to wrap my head around sometimes. Now, was that all happening while you were also going through treatment? Yes. Um, I was through, I've been in and out of treatment many times. I had my first stint in treatment um, at the children's hospital when I was 13. Mm -hmm. Um, At that time, I was actually diagnosed with diabetes. Mm -hmm. So when I was discharged, I was so terrified of my blood sugars going out of control that I literally ate the same thing every day for every meal for about five years um, to keep my blood sugars super stable. And it wasn't until I was about 18, things started to get rocky again. And I would re-enter treatment, but I was in the adult system at that point. Um, And I was in and out of treatment until I was about 26 years old. So there was a lot of time spent in the treatment center, a lot of time, you know, doing family therapy where my mom was heavily involved. um, And we would talk about a lot of these things. So curious, the, I mean, two things really that stood out, like the the diagnosis of diabetes was... Uh, that's something that runs in your family? No, I'm the only one. Okay. Yeah. So, because I know that that, and I just had uh, someone come on to talk about uh, having a diagnosis, both of diabetes and an eating disorder and how tricky that can be. Yes. Um, and it sounds like you really just did something very like dramatic, which was to just to eat the same thing for five years. Um, yeah. Was that something that, you were given like a meal plan by a nutritionist or like what happened there? Um, it was, so this was when I was at home. So I, I went into treatment for the eating disorder. I was diagnosed mm-hmm. with diabetes. Um, obviously I was on a meal plan while I was in the hospital um, and they regulated everything for me. They regulated my food. I stopped choosing my food at that point. They chose my food for me they tested my blood sugars, they took care of my insulin, I was completely hands off. So when I went home, I was given a meal plan. And the meal plan was basically like, you have three choices for breakfast, you have three choices for a snack, lunch, dinner, etc. 
So you get to choose one of these three and you can have whichever one you want. And I was like, okay, well, I don't, I I'm on, um, it wasn't a sliding scale of insulin. It was just like a standing dose. So I was like, I know that if I have my standing dose and I have option B, then my sugars are okay. So I'm just gonna eat option B all the time because I wasn't taught about carb counting or a sliding scale. Um, so that was all I ate. So restrictive. Yes, it was extremely restrictive. So I didn't recognize that at the time though, because I was eating what was on my meal plan. I was eating what I was supposed to. My weight was stable. My blood sugars were fine. So I didn't recognize that it was as restrictive as it was. So what ages was that for that five years? Sorry? What were the ages for that five years that you were? 13 to 18. Okay. So I'm trying to imagine, like I have a 14 year old and a 16 year old. I'm trying to imagine them and having their social life and only eating the same things for five years. Like that must have been horrible. I didn't have much of a social life. I was a really busy, really quiet kid. Um, my, my high school was an hour away from home. So I left the house at six 30 in the morning. I went to my dance studio right after school. I would dance until eight o'clock at night and come home. Um, I didn't really have much of a social life. And I remember one day, like my mom had a bowl of Skittles in the, in the living room. And one day I was like, I think I really want a Skittle. And I had one and I had a panic attack. I was like, what is this going to do to me? I had some, I had sugar. What is this going to do? And I was fine really. But it was like that, that panic of like, if I do anything different, I don't know what's going to happen to my blood sugars. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (sighs) You know, that combining with the perfectionist in you can imagine that must've been horrible. It was hard. It was, and you know what? It was lack of education. I didn't get, I wasn't really taught how to take care of my diabetes beyond you take this this number of units of insulin and this is how you inject yourself and here's how you check your blood sugars and like that's pretty much it i i really didn't receive any other education on how to feed myself and navigate things like going to restaurants or social outings or anything like that so i'm trying to understand so like you were in treatment then you come home and you have this very restrictive meal plan which to me is a therapist is going, oh my gosh, that's just <laughs> prescribing an eating disorder. Um, but was anyone like, were you in therapy outpatient? Was anyone like helping you through this, like to treat your eating disorder after you were in a higher level of care? What was going on for you? Yeah, we had like a, I guess like an outpatient type follow-up with the hospital and it was pretty much like a step-down type program. I did have a therapist with the hospital. So when you first leave, it was like once a week you come in, you get your vitals done, you get weighed, you have an appointment with your therapist. And if things continue to go well, you kind of go further and further between appointments. But that also includes therapy. Now, since I was eating the same thing all the time, despite the fact that I still had so many eating disorder thoughts, my weight was perfect because I was 100% on my meal plan for fear of my blood sugars going crazy. So I very quickly went through that step-down program and then was discharged from the step-down program. Um, I was followed by an endocrinologist at the same children's hospital, but I saw them once every six months. And again, they just kind of like looked at the numbers. Your weight's fine. Your A1C is fine. You can go home. And I really didn't receive a lot of the additional help that I needed. Well, and 
you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that is such a, a, a huge myth out there that if you're eating, if you're weight stable, if the behaviors are such that they are, then you're fine. And I hear this from so many people, like we don't need therapy anymore. We don't need help. Like everything's good to go. And to your point, that's just the behavioral component. Those are just the numbers. And so often labs do look normal, even when people are really, really sick. And the eating disorder part is the part that still needs so much treatment, the eating disorder thoughts, the feelings, how much it's consuming your entire life. That part really wasn't treated or addressed. And I'm so sorry for you that that part really wasn't looked at. Um, and again, it sounds like there was just a lot of lack of knowledge and awareness, but you know, also to the point of like having both diagnoses can get really tricky too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, I mean, I, I'm from Canada and I think that everywhere in the world, there's a big uh, gap when it comes to mental health treatment and eating disorder treatment. And I do remember like when I was in treatment, we had group therapy, we were working on things. Um, but, and it was the same in the adult system too. Once you hit a certain weight, you go home. And it doesn't really matter how long that takes. If it takes a month, you go home. If it takes three months, then you go home. And I mean, when I was in the hospital as a child, um, because of the diabetes, the weight gain was very, very slow. So that's kind of how they figured it out. They're like, what's going on? We're pumping her with food and she's not gaining any weight. Um, so when they started me on insulin, I gained weight quite rapidly, um, as is common when you start insulin therapy. And I think within... Um, uh, four weeks after that, I was sent home. And that's not enough time to, to deal with what's going on in your head. It was about, I think it was about seven weeks total. And you can't, you can't get from A to B with, with your mental health in, in seven weeks. It's just not possible. And so much is not understood probably. And, and, you know, I know it sounds like you had family therapy, but, um, I, how much did you feel like your parents were really under? Well, I don't know if both parents were and your siblings were engaged in the family therapy. Um, maybe you could speak to that a little bit, like who actually came to the family therapy and how much was discussed about how you were actually feeling and what was actually going on for you and in the home and all of that. I don't, I really don't think there was an understanding and I don't think it was for lack of effort on my family's part. I really do believe that eating disorders and mental health in general are just one of those things where you really can't get it unless you're in it and you can have sympathy and you can empathize and you can want to support people, but you, you won't really understand it. Um, my siblings were pretty young. Uh, when I was an adult and we did family therapy, my siblings were involved um, but as an adult, I remember mostly being, there was a lot of anger and frustration in those family meetings. Um, I was a very, very, very sick adult. Um, and despite going in and out of treatment, I was very, um, resistant to treatment and, um, wasn't really in the right mindset to get better, which is why I stayed sick for so long. And I think that's where a lot of their anger and frustration came from is they were just watching me essentially kill myself. Um, and there was nothing they could do about it. And, and the family meetings were very, very hard. So did you feel like they were angry at you? Yes. 
Wow. I don't think I was able to completely separate myself from the eating disorder at that point. Um, And my family put up walls, you know, it, it got to a point where they essentially said, we can't have contact with you. It's too painful. We're so worried. We're just going to get the call that, you know, you've passed away and we need to protect ourselves and cut off contact with you. And of course I took that so personally and I was so angry at them. Um, and it's not until now as a recovered person that I can really recognize that they were, they were going through it too. They were going through a lot and they were really just protecting themselves. Um, but I don't, I don't think that I got a lot of support from my family. And that's not to say that my family wasn't supportive when I was in treatment and I was trying and I was working on recovery. They were very much like, yeah, we're here for you. Um, but my mom was still dieting, talking about her diet programs. Um, my sister was still very apprehensive about having a relationship with me. My dad would make insensitive comments because he thought they were funny dad jokes. Like it just wasn't really great support, but I also could recognize like you're doing what you know how to do. And so I'm going to get through this myself because I know I can do that. My mind's ping-ponging with lots of thoughts right now, but I'm actually just curious to go back a little bit. So you did the five years of eating this very rigid way. Like it sounds like something happened so that that shifted. Did Like what happened so that the five years of this rigid eating like shifted? Yeah, I think it was a lot of leaving high school and like leaving my dance studio and getting a job and having more of a social life. So this structure and routine that I had actually had for five years, not just with my eating, but with my whole life with school and dance and nothing changed, all of a sudden changed. Um, Like I said, I was working, I was making friends, I was going out. And I, I don't remember exactly how it happened, exactly how the, the fear of not being rigid sort of left. Um, it may have been like a very slow, you know, I was having meals and snacks outside of my um, plan. And I was like, oh, nothing's happening. I'm okay. Um, and it just kind of continued. Um, and I also gained a lot more autonomy uh, when I turned 18. I was still living with my parents, but they were kind of like letting me do whatever I wanted to do. And my resentment towards my diabetes kicked in. And I was like, okay, if I don't have, if I can do whatever I want to do, I'm not going to test my blood sugars because I don't want to. I don't like it when I don't like the numbers. That makes me feel bad. So I'm just not going to test them. Um, and I'm going to take whatever insulin I want. My my little, what was it? Not sliding, like the, the standard dose, um, but I'll eat whatever I want. So my blood sugars were probably like going up and up and up and up. And I didn't know because I wasn't testing them. Um, but my weight wasn't moving. So I was like, oh, this is great. I can, I can actually eat. I can actually like have whatever I want. And this fear of like gaining weight and getting fat, like it's not happening. It's fine. Um, and I didn't really like make any connections until I saw an episode of Dr. Phil, um, where a woman went on speaking about diabetes and how she manipulated her insulin to lose weight. And that's when I made the connection. I was like, oh, that's what I can do. And a whole new eating disorder started in my 20s. 
people don't talk about that enough I don't think um, I don't think so like you got really sick that's how I got really sick I mean eating disorders are dangerous and terrible and detrimental and I was very sick when I was 11 but it wasn't until my 20s that I was in and out of emergency rooms in the ICU in a coma because I was like dabbling with such a dangerous combination of binge eating and not taking my insulin. And, you know, I think that's always my fear with um, the podcast a little bit is, you know, someone listening and the eating disorder being so um, attached to hearing somebody's story and going, oh, wait, I can do this. Hold on. Um, and not hearing the message you're really saying, which is, oh my gosh, it almost damn near killed me or the complications. Um, because I know like, even when I had my eating disorder, that was the case for me too. I only be so attached to like the outcome I wanted with the eating disorder and not really hearing, oh, but wait, (laughs) yeah, listen to what almost happened to me. Um, and so anyone listening, you know, who might be thinking, oh, you know, look at the outcome she had, but with, you know, how she can manipulate her weight, but listen, like. I mean, that was obviously not the only outcome. Uh, It was so rapid and such a quick decline of my health and my life. Um, It kind of started when I was 18 and I was in the ICU for the first time when I was 19 Um, and in and out of the ICU. I can't even tell you how many, like how many people can say they've been in the ICU even once, like not many people. I can't tell you how many times I have been in the ICU because I was so close because they said, if you do this one more time, your heart is going to give out. You're not going to make it. And I remember the worst time. I barely remember the worst time. Um, I was living on my own and I couldn't remember the last time I took my insulin. And I blacked out and my partner called the ambulance and I vaguely, vaguely, vaguely remember being in the emergency room and him saying, it's going to be okay. I love you. It's going to be okay. And like sponging my lips with water because I was just so dehydrated and breathing out so much acid. My muscles felt like they were on fire. My head felt like it was on fire because the acid was like burning me from the inside out. And the next thing I remember is opening my eyes and my mom saying, there's my pretty girl, because they called my parents and said, come say goodbye to your daughter. It's not a pretty life. It's not a glamorous life. It's painful and scary. And I missed out on my entire 20s because of it. For anyone um, who can't tell, she's obviously tearful and very emotional I'm tearing up because this is uh, like awful um so scary it's very scary and what's scarier is that I wasn't scared the 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 body being skinny seemed worth it at the time and that's that's really scary and I'm not placing blame on anyone or any institution but I keep thinking like what if I had gotten help that I needed when I needed it, I might not have gone down that path. Where do you, like thinking back, where do you think the lapse was where like you, somebody missed getting you the treatment you needed? I think, 
I mean, I, I really don't think I got the treatment I needed when I was a child, but at the same time, I very much recognize trying to treat a mental illness like an eating disorder in a child is so difficult because you, you, if you say walk, they're going to run like children are so rebellious and like, don't want to do anything unless they want to do it. Um, so I think it's really hard to work on something like that with, with a, with a child, with a child brain. Um, but I really think it was, it's hard to say as I, when I was seeing therapists in my late teens, early twenties, I remember them saying, I can't help you. Like it, you're too far gone. I can't help you. Um, so it's hard to say like, where would have been that tipping point where I wouldn't have been too far gone. But that's awful to hear that. Like this hopelessness that like nobody was there to like catch you and help you and like just to kind of give up on you or to, to give up on you. Yeah, it was really scary. Um, yeah. I eventually had to get there myself where I was, I was too afraid of what was going to happen to me where I kind of had to say, I've got to go down a different path. And that's not where things changed. That's not where things automatically got better. But it's where I feel like my mindset changed where I could be like, okay, I've got to start like listening to what these people are saying. Because I think, like I said, there was a lot of resentment and a lot of resistance to treatment because I was just so like, I don't care. I just want to be skinny. I don't care. Like, I really don't care. And I think that that's so common when you have an eating disorder. It's You don't care about damaging yourself because you're just so enwrapped in it. You know, and so maybe even people listening are going, so, okay, so it is about being thin. It is about like the vanity part and like, you and I probably, you know, we both know recover um so what what do people need to understand about that though because assuming now you you understand it's not about really wanting to be thin um now that you're looking back what do you think it was really about I really believe that the whole eating issue in general um because it wasn't just anorexia when I was in my 20s and not taking my insulin I was binge eating all the time um I really, really believe that it came down to I had zero self-worth. I didn't believe that I, as a person on this planet, was worth it or good enough or deserving or a good person. I did not like myself. And I don't think I could recognize that. Like, I, I don't think that I could recognize that the hate that I had for myself, I was projecting onto my physical body. So instead of waking up and being like, I hate myself, it'd be like, I, I wake up and I hate my body. But really, it was about my self-worth. I was just projecting it onto the physical. Yeah, and I think that's that's the the one of the biggest myths is people really think it's about like wanting to look a certain way or some vanity thing. And it has absolutely nothing to do with that. You're trying to control something else or like to your point putting some other feelings or emotions you don't want to deal with onto your external. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I only remember like a a few little glimpses. I remember one time I was in a store of some kind and I noticed my reflection 
in, I think it was actually a mirror, but I didn't notice it was me. Like I couldn't see the head. I just saw the reflection. I was like, oh my God, she's so thin. And then when I realized it was me, I was like, oh, that's me. And immediately I was like, no, she's actually not that thin. And it was just so weird that like my perception of myself, I couldn't see what I really looked like. It was, it was so strange. Um, And I also noticed that when I started to give a crap about myself, I started to really foster that self-care and I was really working on my self-worth and my, and how I care about myself. I didn't care about what I saw in the mirror as much. It was a really strange phenomenon and a little bit scary, but it really goes to show that like, it was never about the way I looked. And I so often hear that people have that same kind of experience, both things you're saying, of looking, seeing themselves and not recognizing themselves. There's just that total disconnect. And also that kind of surprising shift of, oh, wait, it's not about my size or my weight or my appearance. It's really something else that I'm trying to heal. Uh, That becomes the focus. And I think people really struggle with that. they really believe oh I'll be happier have the life I want or everything will be better if I look a certain way or weigh a certain amount or have a certain size and that is one of the hardest things for people to really not believe like oh wait my happiness or my this perfect life or whatever I'm seeking will only happen when next happens yeah and I think that really like I think it's hard to see it when you're in it but that really is a coping mechanism like that's you saying out loud, I'm not happy with the way things are right now. I'm not happy with where my life is, or maybe where my job is, or where my relationship is. I'm unhappy. It's causing me anxiety or stress. And the coping mechanism, the way to fix it is to look a certain way or weigh a certain amount, a certain amount. And that's how we cope with that unhappiness is trying to find it in this external. And, you know, I'm sure you can understand, and I'm sure many people with eating disorders understand there is no happy place. You you do not get to a place where you're happy with your body and and you feel good and you feel sexy and you feel awesome and everything just falls into place. Like it never, it's a moving target. It doesn't happen. So, and I did want to, um, and you shared a lot um, and I appreciate that because I know this is all hard stuff, um, but you did achieve recovery, which is amazing. Um, and you know, again, I just want to applaud you for that because it's it's a hard road to get to. Um, but intuitive eating, a lot of people have misperceptions about what that is. Um, yeah. And was that something that was introduced to you in treatment or was that something you sought on your own? No, I actually didn't even seek it out. Um, the way my sort of my my journey sort of went was I was in and out of treatment centers until I was about 26 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the, that was actually the first time I'd ever completed treatment. I had been in and out and I'd either left early or got kicked out or for whatever reason, didn't finish. It was the first time I had finished. And I remember kind of just being like, I'm going to give it my all. And I did. And I finished, but like we talked about, um, as soon as you hit your weight, you go home. So I, I wasn't finished with the mental part that wasn't done yet, but I was at a point where I was at least managing. I was taking my insulin again, um, probably about 80% of the time, like I wasn't perfect. Um, but I was 
always looking for diet. I was always looking for like a meal plan. I was, I was struggling with my body. I was overworking out. So from the age of 26 to about 29, I was in the state of what some people call quasi recovery. So I was functioning, I was stable, I had a job, I had a relationship, but I was mentally struggling every single day, thinking about food all the time. What am I going to eat? How much am I going to eat? When am I going to eat? How many bites? How many calories? I was just mentally going crazy. And it would still cause me to like binge at night or binge on the weekends because we know that binge restrict cycle happens naturally when you're restricting. Um, and I actually remember I worked with a girl many years prior at a restaurant and she was very sick back then. And I, when we stopped working together, we fell out of touch, but through the world of social media, I followed her and I noticed that she looked so healthy and happy. And one day she posted about how she now feels beautiful in her skin and eats normally. And I was like, whoa, how did you do that? And she came back to me with, actually, I have something that might help you. And she was the one that introduced me to intuitive eating. I had never heard of it before I spoke to her. So I ended up actually working with her to to work through the steps of intuitive eating in the modules to really get that piece of connection with my body physically and emotionally and my gut brain and my heart brain and my head brain and all of those things and change the way I look at food. I did all of that with her and all of those things that I had never even heard of in treatment. So it was very, very different. Wow. So, and I, I think, um, sometimes people come in your lives for different reasons and it sounds yeah. like she just came in at the right time when you were open and ready for it too. Um, you know, and I think you have to be open and ready for things when they present themselves as well. Um, I agree. So, and you had also done all this work beforehand to, to be at that spot. I think it was really important and I'm still connected to the eating disorder world. I have friends who are eating disorder coaches. That's not what I do. I, I work with people who are kind of more in like the quasi recovery stage. Um, but I, I've, ha I've heard of people who are like, I just want to eat intuitively. And that is the goal. That's the ultimate goal. That's amazing. But I think there are steps you have to take to get out of a state of crisis when when you're struggling with eating disorder recovery before you can really adopt something like that because if you're very sick it's near impossible to tap into your intuition there's a lot of mechanical eating that has to happen and getting your weight to a stable place where you can cognitively process what intuitive eating is and the journey um, and while I think it's a great end goal I do believe that um, there are things that need to kind of come before you dive in completely. And I'm, I'm glad you said that too, because I think people do um, look at something and be like, okay, that's just very simplistic to say like, okay, I'm just going to try this and go. But, you know, and I, I believe that as well. Like I do outpatient therapy and um, there are levels of care that sometimes need to happen before um, outpatient, you know, people do need to be able to cognitively engage in therapy so that they can you know, do something like intuitive eating or even understand the principles um, so mm -hmm. that it can be successful. Um, and if 
you know, the brain's atrophied, you're not like getting nourished enough or having a fuel. That's just not possible. And it's not that people are a failure. It's just the body. It's a physiological thing as well. The body does need a certain amount of nutrition and fuel just to be, you know, at a space where it's stable and um, therapy can actually, you know, proceed and you can achieve recovery um, because this is a complicated illness. Um, it affects the body in all, in all ways, um, as you well know. Mm -hmm. right? Yes, absolutely. So um, I know you shared so much and I know your journey has been long and, uh, you know, very hard, but my goodness, like, congratulations. I know this is, this is, you know, something well-deserved and, um, you know, I know people listening are probably getting a lot out of this. This is a lot to kind of process and take in and people probably, um, people who may have a diagnosis of diabetes or, you know, whatever stage they're at with their um, eating disorder or body image issues. I hope, you know, something Meg shared today is helpful or you can relate to. That's obviously the goal. And I really appreciate you opening up here today. Um, is there any last final words you have for anyone who's listening? Yeah, um, I think I just want to say that I remember even when I was 22, 25, 28, feeling like this is it for me. This is just the way I'm going to live. There is no normal. There is no getting out of it. There is no recovery. I am way too far gone. And I really, really do believe that when you find the recipe that works for you, whether it's intuitive eating or another form of recovery and treatment, and it is your time, you can absolutely recover. Nobody is hopeless. And if I can go from lying in an ICU bed, you know, fighting death to living my freest, healthiest, best life at 33 years old, anyone can do it. Thank you so much. Inspiring words. Um, if anyone does want to like follow you on social media or find you, um, can they do that? Are you open to that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I really hang out on Instagram a lot. Um, Meg.Hanks. Um, I love to chat about my journey on there and chat with people who are going through something similar. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That'll all be in the show notes. Um, Meg, thank you again. And um, again, such an inspiring story. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. This was amazing. So lovely. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.